This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's 2023, a new year and a chance for you lot to try something new. And if getting closer to nature and connecting with the natural world is on your list, then there's something I think you'll need. A pair of binoculars are essential for any nature nerd's day out to make sure you don't miss anything. And Leica's range of kit is, insert chef's kiss right here. Not only are they durable, lightweight, with a great range of optics, and come with a potential finance plan, but they are dead easy to use. To read more about what Leica have to offer for sport optics, visit their website, which is linked in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife conservation and nature. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. Cheers for coming back and clicking play on that pod. Hello everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Into the Wild. It is lovely to have you here. I hope you've had a good week. Jesus, it's been cold as I record this now. Anyway, I'm on the 18th of January. It suddenly got cold again. Oh, these are the bits that worry me about the climate crisis. (laughs) This is the bit that's so obvious. It's like, oh, hey, mild December, 12 degrees, January for four days, minus four. Like, what? Okay. So that was that's terrifying. But I hope you're all right. I hope everyone's enjoying yourselves. I'm buzzing for spring. Can't wait for the wildflower, the insects to come out. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I thought I would let you all know as well what I'm, I'm, I'm working on something. As I always am, my brain's always ticking around. So nothing's confirmed yet, but... But I did a shout out on Twitter to try and get in touch with some gamekeepers or some uh, estate managers or anyone that works within that industry and realm um, to try and visit some game sites and estates uh, around the UK to try and do a bit of a podcast, maybe one episode, maybe two, maybe there'll be a part two as well, where we just look about what's going on. There's so much chat. Whenever we talk about wildlife conservation in the UK, gamekeeping comes up or shooting comes up because so much land is reserved for it on a commercial level, on a smallhold level. It's such a big industry and activity that happens. So I'm really keen. So watch this space nerds watch this space this city boy is going to he's going to a game site at some point um so emails have been sent conversations are happening let's see what happens anyway on to today's show uh today we are talking to a man that has been on the show before a wonderful man a vet a conservationist um and also a conservation consultant i guess he works a lot with some wildlife ngos in the uk um it's the mr alec simmons alec has got a new book coming out called treated like animals it is a wonderful book it's out um in a couple of weeks i think um it's, it dives into how we treat animals, why we treat animals in the way we do, whether it's for food, whether it's for wildlife control, whether it's for pets, and ask certain questions of, do we need to be improving this? Does it make a difference what species it is? Why are we treating one animal like this and another like this when they are almost the same family and group of animal? I think it's a, a really important book, especially when it comes to wildlife conservation, as well as domestically. And, you know, there's so many things that tie into it. There's so many things. So it was lovely to get Alec on the show to talk a bit about some of the points that he brings up. And there is a lovely bit about dogs. <laughs> so I felt like I could I could give my two pence. <laughs> so sorry if there's a bit of a Ryan monologue at the end. But it is a lovely, lovely, lovely book, lovely chat. Um, so this, ladies and gentlemen, is Treated Like Animals with Alec Simmons. Well, Alec, welcome back to Into the Wild. And I say welcome back because you've been on before. Last time we were talking about uh, badgers and bovine TB. Um, now we're on to something completely different. But welcome back. And how are you? It's been a while. I'm fine. Fine, thank you. And 
Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's it's uh, it, it's a pleasure and an honour. It's great to be back. No, no worries at all. Um, how have you been since uh since we last we we've spoken on Twitter occasionally yeah. as our paths often cross on the social networking side but how have you been aside from this kind of chat fine um uh, it's all been quite exciting my wife and i became grandparents a few months ago congratulations <laughs> uh, well, well i finished this book yes i've just got the hard just got the hard copies in today so that's very exciting generally life is good i'm looking forward to the spring yes um i managed to get managed to get away twice last summer i had two weeks in botswana and three weeks in California, which was fantastic. Amazing. A bit hot in California. Yep. Botswana was fantastic, as you can see from the picture. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. It sounds like you've been very, very busy. And we are here today to, to not necessarily talk about your book, but talk about the more the theme of it. It sounds simplistic on the title, but as you start to dive into what the topic is about, it gets very complex and there's loads of angles it to is it. But complex. Before we dive onto that... Um, <clears throat> Obviously, you're a nature fan. We all know this. You've yeah. worked with animals all your career and you are passionate about the natural world. So let's ask you what your nature highlight has been in the last seven days. Well, given it has been raining almost every day for the last <laughs> fortnight, uh, not very much. But I have been tromping around my village a bit just recently, um, trying to get a wee bit fitter because I'm going to Georgia for mountain birds in March. So I thought I'd Amazing. try and get a bit fitter. And yeah. um <laughs> I've been watching these groups of stock doves flying over mm -hmm. the village, going south. And twice on separate mornings, I've seen a groups of anything between five and 50 over a period of an hour or so, flying mm. from one part of the village or nearby, going south to somewhere else. I've absolutely no idea why. Nobody seems to know why. <laughs> it's <laughs> just one of those things that happens. <laughs> well, and then the second time I saw them, the light was, and it's been quite odd recently, the light was just catching them as mm. these were flying about 20 feet over my head or and a wee bit to the side, catching them. And I've never seen them so well lit. And uh, stock doves are a bit like wood pigeons. If you don't look at them carefully, you don't see them good light, they're not very interesting. But they, they really are fascinating looking birds and i was very pleased to see them in in such good light it was just beautifully picked out against a dark sky to be fair that's the same with me if you don't see me in the good light you don't really appreciate what you've just seen like <laughs> yes, it indeed. takes a good backlighting to see me <laughs> um well that's lovely that's nice and it also shows to appreciate just the standard things that we quite often see sure. or you might see mm. every day but as you said, with fortnight of rain, sometimes you need those little moments to, to keep exactly. you ticking by. Exactly. Even like just yeah, a, a day of sunshine could be a nature highlight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my local patch, which I walk on a lot, is uh, part of the Somerset Levels and Moors, and it's completely flooded at the moment. I can't get out yeah. of there. And I don't know what's out there, and uh, I would like to see, because occasionally this time of year a smew turns up, and I would like nice. to see that. You need to get some waders, Alec. <laughs> well, yes, that's all waders. Uh, yeah, I think probably even with waders, it wouldn't be helpful. It, it just, would be <laughs> it Just so much of it. Right. Well, let's go on to our topic today. And sure. I swear to God, into, wild, into the Wild is becoming more and more like a chat show as I go. So you've got a book coming out um, or, or you've got a book out. Yeah. But you have got a book coming out in February called Treated Like Animals. And That's you were it. very kind to uh, send me a proof copy, which I've been flicking through and reading um, whenever I can grab a 10 minute coffee break and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating book. It's an important book as well, I, I think. And I think many people would agree. But it explores the lives 
and our treatment of animals. So first, let's ask this question. How does our treatment differ between different species or groups of animal? Because that must have been something you had to consider a lot with this kind of book. I, I, I did. And I, it, it's quite interesting because there's a bit of sort of almost reverse engineering or hindsight involved in this. As yeah. you mentioned, uh, we talked about um, uh, badger culling and TB. And mm. what brought me to thinking about this was my involvement in that. Um, mm. And I started to realize that it, it depended on the values that we applied to the animals, depending on the circumstances in which we find them, the degree of protection that we uh, afford them. So yeah. research animals, and I know a lot of people are really quite uncomfortable about research animals, they are afforded very careful protection, care, and a great deal of independent inspection and so forth. Mm. Whereas when it comes to farmed animals, it's much, much less. And then when it comes to pets, it's somewhat less still. And when it comes to wildlife, there's almost nothing. And yet there are animals in each of those arbitrary groups, those groups that have grown up culturally, yeah. which are just as able to suffer irrespective of the level of protection that they're applied. So mm. I, I look at something like um, uh, a stoat, which mm. is, I would have said, a heavily persecuted animal, um, trapped uh, fairly mercilessly uh, for, for, for protection of, of game shooting. And yet at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a, an animal which is very similar uh, and almost certainly the same capacity to suffer, which is the polecat and also the pine man, which has got 100% protection. Um, and it, it makes no sense that you're perfectly capable of, uh, of killing one type of animal for one reason and providing perfect protection for another one, merely on the basis that one is rarer than the other. What yeah, you need to okay. be doing is, is making decisions based on science and applying the science to develop a set of societal values which then inform how uh, you would either legislate or otherwise decide how you're going to protect them. Mm. Um, and, and I think the more I looked into this, the more I started to realise that uh, we've got a whole series of arbitrary and uh, often outdated legislation which has grown up piecemeal over the years. And pigeonholes groups of animals into different areas. And you've got the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which really isn't a welfare provision, which is supposed to protect wild animals. But there are so many gaps and derogations from it that it's hardly yeah, worth yeah. it, at least when it comes to mammals. And then you've got very, very strict rules for research animals, which are incredibly draconian. And then you've got farmed animals, which even within farmed animals, you've got much more protection for some types of farm animals than you have for others. And it's quite difficult to justify when you start looking at the science, which tells you that the anatomy, the physiology, the neurological parameters that drive or would underpin the capacity to suffer cognition, intelligence and consciousness are very similar across the board. And of course, what you never hear of now is somebody saying, actually, we've been researching this particular animal and it's nowhere near as smart as we thought it was. It's nowhere near as intelligent or nowhere near able to try and solve problems and get out of jams that we thought it was. Every bit of work that comes out 
when people are looking at behavior of animals, tells us that they're more, they're smarter and uh, more socially aware or more a, a greater capacity to solve problems than ever before. And yet we still treat them like dirt and crows in particular. Do you th- yeah, that's a good example, isn't it? I mean, if you're looking at, especially if you look at intelligence and the treatment of. Yeah. Because this, this is a tricky one though, isn't it? And I'm, I'm really trying to like, I mean, you know me, Alec, I try and put mm-hmm. my mind on a level playing field balance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is never easy because I have to push my views one side and push other that's being pushed my way. So I really have to try and like balance my brain. But this must be difficult because you're taking science, like as we should take science to um, a certain degree to uh, like s- say a point with, you know, let's say the treatment of an animal. Let's take the stoat as an example. So you say, yeah. like, you know, this this is balanced with these other animals that have this level of protection. However, that science could say one thing, but it doesn't take away the reason. It, it, it would justify, justify the mistreatment or not the mistreatment, the, the anti-mistreatment of it, but it wouldn't justify the reason for the person needing to do it necessarily, if that makes sense. Does that make any sense? I, I think you've you've hit a nail on the head there because one of the things I've tried... <laughs> did I? Because it didn't feel like it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to in the end. Uh, I, 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 I went around the houses with it. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that when you look at uh, what we talking about is mm. is the how the mechanisms by which yeah, yeah. an animal might either be husbanded treated killed or otherwise persecuted but there's also the question about why and uh, those two things are, are sort of interlinked and i don't think you can start thinking about how we treat animals without understanding why we intervene in the first place 100 yeah for for the most part the reason for intervening uh, whether it's for conservation, whether it's to race the animal, whether it's to rear it, to eat it, or whether to keep it as a pet, is something which is not really open to a great deal of scrutiny because it's so bound into our culture that we never actually question the reasons why. And almost invariably, when we do start to question the reasons why, like, for example, there seems to be quite a lot of concern about shooting and uh, trophy hunting, which I know you're involved in, and I'm mm. starting to get involved in it now, is that the question about why is one of the most difficult things to start addressing because immediately mm. what that does is is create this uh, um, rift between the two factions, which just deepens the more you start asking questions. Yeah, it really uh, does. And, and, and because of that, you're up against feeling that a lot of the time the evidence that you might want to bring to bear to argue against a particular intervention and I'll go back to this example of, of, of wildlife being killed to protect game birds, for example. Mm. Uh, the evidence that you might want to present about snares is actually scant. It's, there's virtually no data about the animal welfare aspects of using snares, mm. um, which is quite extraordinary. And yet I think most of the people that I know think they're ab- abhorrent. Uh, they think they're unavoidably cruel uh, inherently cruel and cannot be made to be uh, humane. And I agree with that. But finding the data which says this is what happens when uh, animals are snared and collecting it in a structured, um, robust and uh, scientifically valid way is extraordinarily difficult and also probably uh, of, of dubious ethics as well. Mm. So. One of the things I've argued for in the book is is a, is a slightly different approach to this, uh, where 
new methods of intervening against animals, or for that matter, new methods of husbanding animals, I would argue that rather than saying, try it and let's see what happens, the new methods only get approved for use if and when you, the manufacturer, you, the developer, you, the inventor, come up with an evidence base to show that uh, what you're proposing to do is humane. I would also argue that this ought to be applied retrospectively to other interventions like crow traps, mm-hmm. uh, snares, traps for mice and rats and so forth, um, which are also almost certainly inherently inhumane, to say, if you want to continue to use these, we're going to give you, I don't know, three, five years to collect the data to demonstrate to us that your piece of equipment, your intervention, your system of husbanding cows or sheep or chickens is humane. Otherwise, you ain't going to be able to market it. Um, Or in the case of something which has been used for a while, it will be withdrawn from use. Because when I look at the way in which we've done, for example, uh, methods of killing animals for slaughter, for human Mm. consumption, that's exactly what's happened. The, the evidence base is there before you can start to introduce a new system of killing animals. Now, it's far from perfect, and there are a number of the systems that are used for killing animals for human consumption uh, are, are, are far from perfect by any means. The fact is that there is a, an impetus to move towards that, but there's mm-hmm. nothing really that uh, is being done for uh, what goes on with wildlife, which I find quite difficult to justify, and I think... There's time that we reviewed this and started to build an evidence base. But my my strong view is it's for the protagonists, the proponents of these bits of equipment to provide the evidence. Why should it be animal welfare? Why should it be conservation? They have to go out of a way to collect this data when the people that want to do it are the ones that are saying it's perfectly all right, very, very important. Well, go out and collect it. And if you can't be bothered, then stuff it. That's it. You've lost, yeah. you've lost it. <laughs> Don't tweet that. <laughs> well, I already, I already have. Well, you already have, yeah. Okay. <laughs> come on, come on, Musk. Where's that edit button? Right. So we, so in the book as well, I see far. Like I think inevitably in a book that's called Treated Like Animals, farming comes up a lot. As you've just, even what you've just said in, you know, in the beginning of this chat with me now is, is for obvious reasons. Where for you, and I think this is going to be a hard one. <laughs> where for you is change needed the most in uk farming when it comes to treatment of animals okay i'll come back to answering that question in a moment but i want you to appreciate i want your listeners to pre- appreciate this is complex and as you've already alluded to but it's complex not because just the way in which you treat animals from the perspective of animal welfare but because of the impact on people's diets and their health because of mm-hmm. the impact on climate change and, and uh, the future of the planet and also the potential impact on biodiversity. So you've got those three factors you need to take into account as well. Biodiversity, human health, public health, if you like, and also climate change. And those three things are interlinked, but they have a bearing on how you keep animals and therefore have a bearing on the welfare of them. But I think the biggest change to my mind uh, or where I would start putting the efforts to try and improve things is where the animals 
are in their largest amounts. Now, yeah. a, a question for you and a question for your listeners, and they can pause, oh, and, think, <laughs> pause and think about this. Do you know how many broiler chickens, that is meat chickens, are produced in this country every year? That is the United Kingdom. How many? Oh, I'm going to have to guess, aren't I? All right, okay, take a it's guess. It's going to be... Okay, I'm be- I'm gonna I'm gonna like maths always taught me to show my working out. If they're releasing eighty million pheasants, it's got to be some more than that. So mm. I'm gonna guess three hundred million. Okay, is that too it's- many? Have I ruined it? No, 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 not at all. You're well out. Um, it's around about one billion. Oh, sh- so <laughs> it, it, what that means is that every every week, fifty two weeks of the year, there are about twenty million chickens killed in this country, which means about 4 million every working day. Uh, The the numbers are breathtaking. And and the welfare of these animals is certainly compromised by a number of different things. And I won't Mm. go into a lot of detail about it. But we worry about, and again, I go into this in the book, or we spend a lot of time worrying about circus animals when there are only about 15 of them in circuses. The amount of parliamentary time that was devoted to trying solving this problem when it was something like, I don't know, an elephant, three or four llamas and a couple of raccoons, and, and that was it. It was, yeah. it, was, it was low double figures. Yeah, Here it wasn't we have a, a good circus. A, 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 <laughs> <laughs> a billion chickens, and yeah, that's mad. It's 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 just absolutely extraordinary. The figures are inconceivable, and when you think globally, it's sixty six billion, and this is increasing the rate of two or three percent every year. It's already overtaken the production of pork to be the most uh, popular meat in the world, and I don't think. There's much prospect of being able to reverse this. It's become such a ubiquitous food that the likelihood of actually being able to stop the growth of this is very low. And the fundamental problem is the very thing that the poultry industry wants to achieve, which is rapid growth and getting to slaughter mm. weight in the shortest period of time, is the thing that mitigates against animal welfare. Is that part of the thing that you think should change is this rapid growth in production. It, the, 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 there was a chap I used to work with that used to call the, the broiler chicken as close to being a Formula One car as you could possibly think, in as much that it gets the very, very best engineering through genetics. Mm-hmm. It gets the very best environment in which to grow, which is, if you like, the... Uh, the racetrack, and it gets the very, very best fuel in the form of very high-protein, high-energy foodstuffs. And it gets in there as a day-old chick, it stands about and eats and drinks and grows and does just about damn all else. And in getting to that position of around 30 to 40 days uh, of age, it grows so fast that it's growing, it, it is putting on at the very youngest age for every 1.1 kilo of food it eats, it puts on a kilo of weight. Um, Jesus. So these things are growing at an extraordinary fast rate. Um, but like a Formula One car, if you don't pump the tires up properly, if you haven't got a first-class driver, if the engineering's not good, the maintenance's not good, the track's not good, it's going to crash or it's going to break yeah, down. Yeah. And it's the same thing with a broiler. Everything has to be absolutely spot on. The problem about it is that when you've got these sites of 
250,000 chickens run by three or four people or perhaps even fewer than that, the care that can be given to the individual is obviously going to be minimal. So what you're really doing is, is, is growing these animals like a crop. In fact, mm. you'll find that that's what the industry says because over a period of a year, they will put in 10,000 chickens into this shed. Four to six weeks later, four or five weeks later, they will come out. A week will be done to clean them up, and then another group will go in. So over a period of a year, you will have eight, five to seven batches go through that, and they call them crops. They don't call them batches or a flock. It's a, it's a, it's a crop of chickens, and essentially that's what they are. That's um, mad. So it's, it's a bit grim. They're unlike many other farmed animals. They aren't mutilated. So um, we look at pigs, sheep, and cattle. Uh, there a fair bit degree of mutilation goes on of, of, of those animals. Mm. And I would like to see more pressure brought to bear on the farming industry to, to bear down on the amount and type of mutilations that are routinely done on cattle, yeah, yeah. Uh, cattle sheep, and pigs. Having said that, for the most part, they are there or done for a good reason. But you can always get around this if you put enough effort into. And again, in the book, I go into a little bit of detail about how people are reducing the need for mutilation of sheep, for example, by either breeding out some of the characteristics you seek to uh, control or just managing the animals in a different way. And uh, there's not enough of this going on because each time you do that, you are causing the animal to suffer. doesn't matter how you describe it. It doesn't yeah, yeah. matter how you do it and how efficient you are. This is going to cause pain. For the listeners as well, because I'm aware, like some people might not be, like when we say mutilation, you know, yes. it's a very strong word. It's a very it accurate is. word for what we're saying, but it's a very harsh sounding word. But to clear up, like let's look at sheep. Are we talk, we're talking about tail dagging and stuff like this, like it, 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 removing tail, the tail and stuff. Tail, tail docking to prevent the... Uh, the, the, the tail becoming clarted up and uh, increasing mm. the risk of screwworm and uh, fly, strike uh, fly strike and so forth. Uh, we haven't got screwworm in this country, but we certainly <laughs> get plenty of blue bottles and so forth, which will cause a lot of damage to sheep. Uh, and then a castration uh, yes. for sheep. The, the vast majority of, of lambs are castrated still in this country, and the vast yeah. majority of them will be done without anaesthetic. And the oh, I've from, done it. Yeah. I had to well, do it at agriculture college. Elastic uh, band, mate. Uh, I didn't know you'd been to agriculture college, so you know what you're talking about. That's good. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> for the listeners, I've, I assume this is still. Ge- I mean, this was this was some years ago, uh, yeah, yeah. but we had to do it in because we were a working farm. We had 200 ewes. Yeah. So we had um, we had to dot the tails, which was ve- so basically you put a very tight rubber band on That's to it. cut off the yeah. blood supply, blood, yeah. blood supply, and then you just find these tails in the field, and the same with the testicles. Yeah. You just. I mean, I mean, I will say as a teenage lad, it did make me squint, like <laughs> having to do it. But uh, yeah, at yeah. the time, that's what was being taught as practice. Is that still how it is? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, good, and, nice, and things, it, nice to know it, things evolved. <laughs> it, it, it's always, well, it, it, it's, it's, this is sort of 200 years of, of, of routine, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it, with cattle, it, it, it's dehorning and uh, castration of, of, of steers. With pigs, it's... Uh, removal of uh, teeth, uh, oh. docking of the tail, um, nose rings. So uh, it's all a bit grim. There's pressure being brought to bear because these things are not uh, legal less as a, a good veterinary argument for doing it, uh, at least when it comes to teeth clipping and um, mm. tail docking of pigs. 
And there is moves to try and get fewer and fewer of these done, but it's slow. And the routine of this is deeply ingrained in the farming community. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly worked with farmers when I was an undergraduate and also when I was a uh, new, newly qualified, where the farmers were saying quite openly, without a hint of irony, that, <coughs> excuse me, that none of these procedures hurt. Um, and without putting too fine a point on it, that's bollocks. Yeah, no pun intended. No pun intended. The idea you cannot, you can say it, it doesn't hurt is just nonsense. And uh, uh, we yeah. need to find ways to try and get on top of this. Yeah, I think I think interesting what you say about the breeding out of certain things, and you know, if there, if there's a, a trait that's inconvenient from a husbandry perspective, which sure. I completely agree and see, then like you said, but like maybe the mutilation is not the automatic way we need to go. Maybe it's the breeding out of the trait that is causing the inconvenience. I, I think uh, exactly, and I'm not suggesting this is easy. It, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not easy, but I think. The evidence builds up about how painful these things are and mm. what impact it has on the animals. And um, we need to find ways of dealing with it. Um, and yeah, we yeah. need to, th- there needs to be more of a push. And one of the, and this is central to the whole book, is that the more people understand, the general public understand what is being done to the animals that they eat or watch at a racehorse, a race course, yeah. or, uh, happens to animals which are providing the medicines or ultimately helping to provide the medicines that give them a longer, happier, healthier life, the more people will either appreciate or, for that matter, they might say, I'm not prepared to accept this. So Mm. the openness and uh, 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 more data and more evidence about what goes on is something that I'm very keen on doing. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much, and back onto the show. The the other big thing in the book as well, and <laughs> is wildlife management, which is a can of worms. I am always scared to go near, and the reason is is because half the people in the argument have guns. So I'm a bit worried about talking about it. Everyone's yes. like, "Yeah, let's talk about that." Yeah, but it. What are some of the methods currently used? And, and let's just like list them out. What are some of the methods we use for wildlife management? You mentioned snares at the beginning. Yeah. So that's one. It, snares, um, there are lethal traps, spring traps, uh, mm-hmm. which are used for stoats and rabbits. Snares, is, which we often use for foxes and, and, and rabbits. Then there are live traps, which you can use mainly for uh, corvids, crows and uh, yep. rooks, jackdaws. Uh, which will collect the animal and usually through some sort of trip mechanism, tip them into a, cra- a trap, which they're attracted to either by a decoy or food. And then su- subsequently, the gamekeeper will come along and, uh, and, and kill the bird. And then, of course, there are other things which are more used in sort of domestic or business purposes. Uh, so things like glue traps and there's moves yes. to ban those poisons. And those are generally confined to 
uh, the killing rodents. Um, and then there's things like mole traps, which are one of the most egregiously cruel methods of so-called wildlife management. And I go into that in some detail because I find it absolutely abhorrent. It's a, yeah. a wicked way of killing an animal. But what's interesting about it is that you've got certain types of spring trap that are approved and therefore work has been done to establish whether or not they are effective in killing an animal within a given time scale of, I think, around about two minutes generally, the, the, the thing is. And the recent changes to traps for stouts mm. uh, will probably improve things uh, because the traps there are a bit more effective. But the traps that you can buy, and you can buy them in hardware stores, garden centres and so forth, and even online, that you can use for killing rodents, rats and mice and so forth, and also the specific type of traps that are used for moles, they're exempt from this process. So what you've got is traps which nobody knows whether they work on. Yeah, yeah. And there's some good work being done by a colleague of mine, Sandra Baker, and I should give a, a shout-out to her uh, from the Oxford uh, Wild Crew uh, mm. Conservation Research Unit, which when they've looked at the power of these traps, because you pull them back onto a catch, and then when they get tripped, they spring forward very, very quickly. What they found is that with these non-approved traps, the ones that don't have to go through this process, is between manufacturers, there is enormous amount of variation in the power of the trap. But even within manufacturers, there's enormous amount of difference in power. So you could buy half a dozen mouse traps made by Mr. Smith and three of them will be effective, and three of them will just give them a tickle around the back of their neck. Or worse, perhaps they will paralyze them, them, and they will just die through starvation and slow, painful death. So I'm very much in a favour of, of of a complete and utter root and branch review of the way in which we authorise killing of wildlife, not only to satisfy ourselves that the equipment is up to scratch. Yeah. And therefore, they've gone through a process. But the other people, the other thing is that the people that use these things have to be competent. And there's nothing which says that you using a mole trap or me but using a mouse trap or this man using a stoat trap has to be in any way competent at all. You can go buy these from anybody. You can buy them in garden centres. There's no instructions that come with them. And you could cause all sorts of mayhem with them. Um, and it's extraordinary. Uh, and I compare that with the slaughterhouse, where each person that is involved in the slaughter of animals, and there are a number of different steps in that process, mm. has to have gone through training, has to have got a certificate which is provided by a veterinarian, and is subject to regular supervision. Now, it's not perfect, but it's a damn sight better than what these gamekeepers seem to be able to do and what the general householder seems to be able to do when it comes to animals which have got the same degree of sentience. I have such a <laughs> battle with this. I'm it's a bit angry today, so I do apologise about my language on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can but censor I, yourself. I, yeah. <laughs> I am, yeah. I, I also am careful, right, because I've got to think about what I'm talking about here. So right, I'm just going to say it's my show. Why would anyone yeah. that has a garden that has a mole in it want to remove it, remove it? I would adore that. Yeah, and I well, know I, yeah. that many people would be like, oh, it's buggered up my grass. Oh, yeah. it's ruined my fuchsia. It rerouted it. 
or whatever. And fair do that can annoy you. Yes. But there's so much in me that's like, you don't have to kill it. Like, it's not that much of a direct impact that like, oh, we got a mole in the garden and we've been evicted. Like, it's not that level of of like bad. Do you know what I mean? So that, no, I don't no. think there's much argument there. And I think that's a, more of a step of us appreciating the wildlife that's around us yes. within our domestic setting rather than seeing it as a battle. And obviously that has that has complexities in itself because it depends what it is. It depends what it's doing. I get it. If a mm -hmm. fox comes in and kills your cat or kills your small dog, then mm -hmm. that's something completely different. But, you know, and, and something like a mole or something, I do get quite confused with stuff like that. From yes. a site management point of view, whether we look at like a nature reserve, a wildlife reserve point of view, whether it's a game shooting point of view, whether it's whatever, even a farm, I understand it on another level. I go, because there's a there's a reason why that land is there, whether I agree with that reason for or yeah. not. I, I understand that's there. But then I think reviews of this kind of stuff is is almost, I mean, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but is, that's essential. We should be reviewing well, that. Well, I would have I would have thought so. And 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 uh, you know, the Pest Act hasn't been rewritten. There's been a number of amendments to it, but the Pest Act, I think, goes back to 1954. So it it's it's older. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but uh periodically uh, legislation should be reviewed and mm. be brought up to date with modern thinking and modern science. I should say that, uh, and I won't na name the organisation, I do advise, I'm an independent advisor to a conservation NGO, but I do mm. it for two. But this particular one is addressing mole control in its properties. Um, right. And as a result of the policy that they've written, which I've had a hand in, the numbers of moles that are being killed, the number of premises, properties that moles are being killed on has been reduced dramatically mm. because the question is being asked, do you need to do this? Why? And yeah. a number of them have sort of said, actually, I think we could live with this. There are other parts of the organisation where, for reasons which I won't go into, the pieces of land that they want to continue to kill moles in are very, very much more formal in the way in which they're laid out. Yeah. And that makes it more difficult. But to their credit, they are trialling these sonic deterrents. I'm somewhat sceptical about it, but they seem very, very um, pleased with the results so far. So maybe my scepticism is unfounded. Yeah, it's that's, that's interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, as long as they're happy. Like it's not, well, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. But I think that I think that's the interesting point. I think that's that's the question, isn't it? When we ask about from, I, th I think especially, well, even on a domestic level, but a very especially from a site management or a, or you know a land management perspective, yes. you ask yourself the question: Why are you doing it, and do sure. you need to be doing it? And I don't think there's any drastic danger. Now I'm speaking ignorantly here. I this might shock you, Alec. I'm not a gamekeeper, nor do I own a massive plot of land. No. I'm working class in London. Um so I don't I don't own an estate, right? So no. I don't I, I don't have anything to lose by saying this, but I don't think there's much at risk by let's say again let's just take a let's just take foxes for an example on a game site. Let's say you didn't do it for a couple of years and then to see if there was any impact. And if there was a massive impact and you're like, we are losing stuff here, then you can go back in. But if it's not, can is that not an example of trying to live with? 
Well, I, th- I think it is. And I, I have got friends who run a very small shoot. I think they only put 250 birds down. Yeah. And they do no predator control. They don't kill any foxes. They don't kill any stoats. And they don't kill any crows. And they have a good time. There's only about half a dozen involved. They go out four or five days a year and they have a mm. good time. I think that the the thing that is concerning many people like me and uh, people who know much more about the whole industry than I do is the scale of the very large shoots, which are under pressure to present hundreds of birds a day to commercial shoots where people are paying, I don't know, perhaps even as many four figures a day for the shooting. And they routinely kill all of the corvids, kill all of the foxes and kill all of the soaps as far as they're properly able to do so. Um, the problem about it is that, and this is something I haven't gone into the book, but I'm aware of it through other sources, is that inevitably when you put down tens of thousands or perhaps several thousand pheasants into a vicinity, a high proportion will die for a variety of reasons, getting run over in the road or dying from starvation or disease or whatever else it will be. And what does that feed? It feeds stoats, crows and foxes. So they're in this never-ending spiral of having to so get on top yeah. of the problem. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's crackers. And, and we deserve better. We deserve a better management of the countryside and something which takes into account that many of us have got a reason to think that we have a stake in this. We may not own the land. We may not have put the birds down, that is, the pheasants. But I believe these foxes, insofar as anybody owns them, are the general publics. And I would like the general public to have a bit more say over this. I, I, I think Agreed. the arrogance... Well, it's. Uh, I, I think the general public has a stake. This is why rewilding, this is why reintroductions of animals are becoming so much more popular, because people believe that uh, uh, they would like to see things change. And I think there are a number of areas over and above rewilding, which is going on at a small scale, and reintroductions, which is going on with a variety of different species to some high degrees of success. Mm-hmm. There's still quite a lot of stuff we could be doing, which outside of these flagship reserves like Minsmere and Hamwall, yeah, yeah. Titchfield Haven, we are doing things which enhance biodiversity, enhance the abundance of wildlife, which takes into account the general thrust of people's wants and aspirations. Now, it's a little bit uh, utopian in its view, but I think there's a lot to be done here, which mm. would take account of, of, of the general public's views about it. And, and, you know, you could you could conflate all the things there is about access to land, animal welfare, protecting biodiversity, climate change, and uh, perhaps even addressing sort of ownership of land. And these mm. things are all interlinked to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which is why it's so complex. I've had to take a narrow, I've deliberately taken a narrow focus with my book, but I don't pretend that actually there are a whole series of things uh, don't impinge on it because they do. So things yeah. like climate change, things like biodiversity, and also public health. Yeah. So I, when it. I th- I th- I've just realised I've said something about gamekeepers and now I'm going to get people writing in. <laughs> oh, if, you can, if, you you can were, blame, if you're you a... Can, sh- like, you can blame oh, me. 
Yeah. Like, look, I will say this. If, if there are any shooters or any hunters or any gamekeepers even or anyone listening, I, I, I value you. Please don't get angry. Like, I tell you, every time we do an episode like this and we say something, I I always, I've, I love getting messages, but people go, you should have had a gamekeeper on. It's like, oh, should I? Should I have? Like, and I will say to people, I am currently, we're in the process of contacting gamekeepers to go and visit oh, their sites and stuff. Good. Because, you know, good. it's all about should learning do. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all should be like, we I should be allowed to go there regardless. Um, so we... You, you know, it is it is something we're doing, but I just realised what I, I said about there's no impact on that, and I have no idea. Um, but we're going to move over to something I can talk about because I do have knowledge. Yeah. We're going to talk about pets very briefly towards the end, Alec. And we're going to restrict this to dogs because that means I've got some knowledge in this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about dogs. You say in the book that exploitation starts at home with pets. Can you explain why? Okay, well, first of all, I should say that I keep cats. I've, I've had three. One died recently, so I've got two. And I, my childhood, I had dogs. And I used to make a living out of dogs when I was in private practice. So mm. I've got a bit of knowledge, a bit of stake, but I've also got some pretty firm views, which may not necessarily uh, always accord entirely with the veterinary mainstream. Mm. But when we take an animal and keep it in a domestic environment, which is, for that animal, artificial, then essentially what's happened is that we are exploiting it. We're providing it with shelter, food, warmth, comfort, companionship. But the shelter, the food, the warmth, and companionship is given to that animal because of the benefits that we accrue from it, Uh, the companionship that we get from it, and the the health-giving properties of owning a dog, which are well-known in terms of exercise and reduction of blood pressure, all those sorts of things I want to emphasize. But there are a number of things about the way in which we treat dogs, which mean that the exploitation is poor. Because, uh, you know, you mm. can exploit an animal where, or, or, or keep it and use it in a way which is not detrimental or only mildly so. But when you look at obesity, isolation and separation mm-hmm. anxiety, the breeding of, of extreme dogs in terms of size, conformation, and also that we do other things to them, like extending their lives through what I would consider to be unnecessary interventions, mm-hmm. either surgical or medical, then what you find is that, if you like, the way in which we look after these animals is generally for our benefit rather than for the animal. I don't disagree that the animal itself, the dog and uh, cat, will gain something from this. But fundamentally, it's still like a farmed animal, like a research animal, like a racehorse. It is there for our benefit. And we need to recognise that. And uh, I've got quite aerated in the book about breeding of dogs when you look at these short-faced animals, which mm-hmm. uh, you can hear them walking along the street before you can Away see them. before you can see them, yeah. yeah. Uh, so these animals have got verging on respiratory distress on a 24-hour-a-day basis. Some yeah. of them can't sleep without sticking a rubber ball or a rubber bone in their mouths to keep their mouths open at night. They can't walk more than 100 yards without getting out of breath. They get corneal ulcers. They get all sorts of teeth problems because their jaws are all over the place. It's horrible. 
it's completely and utterly avoidable by yeah. not buying dogs like this, breeding out these characteristics by crossing bulldogs with some other animal which has got the right shape, and you could solve the problem in two or three generations. But the vanity of the people that keep them, the vanity of the people that breed them, and the ten-eared attitudes is what's maintaining this. And it's wrong. Yeah. You, you know, and people listening know, I, I work... I work with domestic dogs. I, I yeah. see this on a, a, you know, especially in London, I see this on a daily basis. And yeah. it's hard because when you have a love for animals, you don't have, you still have that love for some of these breeds that are suffering from this. You still yeah. love that animal. Yeah. yeah. You just don't love what it, what it, what it has. And that is a really weird thing to, it's like, it's, it's like feeling uncomfortable with a lion because it's got a mane. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, well, it doesn't make it less of an animal. It's just, I don't like what it's got. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But we'll shave it off. And shave or, it, yeah. And th- this dog's got floppy ears, so I'm going to do surgery on to make it stand up. Yeah. Uh, and it, I it's, think it's horrible. It's it, the, the other battle, I think, I wonder what your views on this are, especially when it comes to treat, because I think this is more of a subtle treatment of animals, is, you know, especially with dogs it's incredibly easy i think this is not even a hard sentence to say it's incredibly easy to get a dog you know i could yes. go out, i could go out tomorrow with if i had the money and buy yes. four dogs of any breed of my choice and i wouldn't struggle and it would be great and i'd have them right um, yeah. and no one would check anything there so i could do that the damage i see and this isn't a criticism to anyone that does have any of the these breeds because i don't judge on breed but there is an increasing level of working dogs going into urban yeah. domestic settings. So working dogs that may be perfectly at home in a farm, on a yeah. game site, maybe up on the moors, but in urban and city environments, especially people that aren't used to handling maybe a working cocker spaniel, a German shorthead pointer, a shepherd of any variety, that starts to look at husbandry treatment then because, you know, these animals have certain things they need or yeah. certainly expecting. Whether we say it's a need, they're expecting it. Um, and when they yeah. don't get this kind of treatment, you know, you get these frustrations. So what? That that's more of a subtle thing, isn't it, when we start to look yeah, at those kind right. of issues? I, I didn't go into that, but certainly... There are many working collies and uh, cocker spaniels that have got the most extraordinary energy, but mm. also this extraordinary desire to round up or hunt or yeah. uh, pick up and so forth. And those traits have been selected over generations by people who've been breeding for specific tasks. And if they don't get an opportunity to do those tasks, uh, I've no doubt that there's a great deal of suffering that takes place and I don't think people should buy them if they're going to have to lock them up for 16, 18 hours a day um, mm. and expect that this animal is going to be... Um, Fine. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, everybody loses in the end. The dog ends up having to get rehomed or put down. Somebody gets bitten or the sofa gets yeah, torn to yeah. pieces. Uh, all sorts of things can go wrong. Just to sort of finish up on the on the pet side of things, I want to emphasize that I'm absolutely convinced that the vast majority of people hearing what I've said will say will be saying, I love my dog and I do everything I possibly can for it. And I don't doubt that. Yeah. But this animal, your dog, your cat, your rabbit, is the one animal that you, as an urban dweller, and for that matter, most people who don't have horses or livestock or farmed animals or research animals this is the one animal or two animals you've got at home where you could really make a difference by doing the right thing and it seems to me that that 
breeding of these animals is something that it's going to be difficult for the general public to argue, we expect you to treat these farmed animals better. We expect you to treat wildlife better. When you're taking a pug which can't walk 100 metres on its own for a walk yeah. um, and, and, and going out of your way to look for an animal which looks like it's run into a wall. It's crackers. So yeah. uh, I implore people to think hard about what you're buying Select very carefully, get veterinary advice, and I think that's imperative, but also make sure that you're doing the right thing and seem to be doing the right thing before you seek to try and influence other people. I, I totally agree. I, I, I really do agree with that. And I think it's like Alec has said, it, it's not, you, you know, you look at the physical, but look at the behavioral and, and think yeah. about the life that you can give that sure. dog and weigh that up and i I've, uh, and i'm speaking specifically dogs here but there are you know every every uh, domestic animal has has its needs and requirements and but i, I think also like there has it's, it's unquestionable there's been a boom in dogs globally but yeah. especially in the yeah. uk in the last three years uh, due to lockdown and them being seen as more of a solution than anything else we're at a tipping point at the moment and i think you know that will continue to grow it has steadied now well certainly around my local patch we've seen a steady um it's steadying out but it will continue right. to grow and i think at some point i think government enforcement defra and something are gonna have to come mm. in and weigh up what is currently happening not just for the treatment of the dogs with them going into rescue homes with them getting out of control in public spaces but also the the impact on the public and their public health on a negative <laughs> negative view because not everyone likes having dogs around and their impact on wildlife in their lo where yeah. they are locally but also their impact on the planet you know you, the dog population went up by about 2.5 2.8 million in a year um now think about all the products that are being bought like yeah. you know think about yes. the food production yeah. going up think about the toys the plastic the poo bags all this stuff the the tick yeah. and flea treatment going into waters and, and into glasses. Yeah. so all that stuff goes up i could talk about this all day but what i'm saying is i think we're at a tipping point to close the book on the pets and i think i'm glad that you put it in the book because i think when we talk about the treatment of animals i completely agree we automatically look at the obvious we automatically yes. look at farmed the things that are being killed but we don't look close enough to home and I, i'm really glad you put that bit in Good. your okay. book treated like animals because i think it's important and like you said to get people to just self-reflect and go if we ask for that standard what standard are we doing for our own animals yeah, i think exactly. it's very good last question to you alex let's mm -hmm. round it up is not about the book i will say to everyone um when is your book out alex it's february isn't uh, two weeks today first of february Two weeks. Okay, so everyone, Alex's social media is in the write-up of this show, so follow him on there. We'll do a post about it on our Instagram as well. But the sure. last question Thank is, you. if you could pass on one thing for people to try and help connect with nature, what would you what would you pass on? Well, this is Big Garden Birdwatch coming soon. Uh, oh, good I shout. That's, <laughs> that's, that's something that I've neglected to do for a while, but I think I probably will do it this year. Yeah, um, that's always good fun. I, I, and I think... One of the things that I'm really quite keen on is that people try and appreciate what they do and understand right where they live. And so one of the things, particularly during lockdown, I did was spend a lot of time looking at the insects because I was stuck at home uh, yeah. all the time. Looking at the, and it was a glorious spring, I don't even remember, uh, nearly three years ago. Uh, and mm. I 
did a lot of moth trapping, but I started to spend hours just photographing flying insects around the garden. I had a great time, and I learned an yeah. enormous amount. So look locally, turn over stones, watch what's buzzing about your garden if you get the opportunity, or if you don't have a garden, have a look in a park. And you can find out all sorts of things. I mean, for example, the moths in my garden, I'm now up to 300 species that I've found in the garden. That's and it's mad. T- I love that. It's, well, I know people who've found 600 plus, so I've yeah. got a long way to go yet. But <laughs> the variety, shapes, colours, patterns, sizes, is just stunning. And it's all there without having to go anywhere. So, mm. I mean, you can get, you know, these moth traps aren't very cheap. You can get kitted up at probably a minimum price of about £100. But you can learn so much and, 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 and get so enthused. I used to sort of skip out of bed in the morning down to go and have a look at this what was in my trap, and I've caught the most extraordinary creatures that you think, where does that live? It, You know, it's a wingspan three inches wide, and it's just living under a bush somewhere and only yeah. comes out at night. Just amazing. So that's what I would do. Understand what's going on in your, your immediate locality. Amazing. Well, Alec, thank you so much for being on the show again. It's been a pleasure yeah. to chat and uh, opening our eyes up, isn't it? I think it, the Treated Like Animals, it's a lovely book and thank you. it's it's something that I think is very important to get everyone to do and just, you know, no matter where you are in the world, just look about how animals are being treated and why and don't be afraid to question stuff, you know? Yes. Everyone, like you said, like especially when it comes to wildlife, we're allowed to question what's going on. Sure, we should. Um, even if we do not have a hand directly in the kind of uh, invested interest in it we've got uh, that invested love in the wildlife so thank you so much for being on the show it's been a pleasure to have you back thank you very much thanks again for listening everyone if you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's into the wild episode then you can do so on social media their tags are in the write-up of this episode also you can follow us on social media at into the wild pod on twitter and into the wild podcast on instagram And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.